Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Ooh. Oh, there's nothing I like more than a good music fade into things. I've told people this before. I don't know if you were here when I've mentioned it, but I have this really funny pet peeve where when I get out of my car, like anywhere, I can't actually get out of my car, like unless the song has ended. <laughs> so sometimes I'll sit there and actually wait till the song ends, or I will actually fade it on my volume before I get out of the car. It's just too abrupt to be like jamming and then just open my door and it's just like stop and into the next thing. A um, little bit about me. How about that? <laughs> um, hey guys, uh, my name is Andy. If uh, this is your first time here, um, I am one of the pastors and the creative director here at Vox. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, it is the fall, yet it's California. So it's also the summer at the same time. God bless us. Um, and uh, we're going to get right into it today. So uh, the only only announcement I have. Um, one, go to the website. You can learn everything about us there. Um, and secondly is in uh, box dinners. Let's see if it comes up there. Um, so uh, we do monthly dinners um, around the county. Um, if you're, uh, if you've been with us for the past two years. You've participated in this before. It used to be called Table Fellowship. And um, honestly, we just wanted to make it very literal and very obvious about what it is, which is just dinner. So it is just having dinner with the folks around you um, in, uh, in a home. And we feed you, and we get to know you. We build relationships, and um, we have fun. And because we really just feel like if the world is going to change um, anywhere, it's around the kitchen table. And while we love to do this as a, as a way to do church, um, our way of kind of keeping this reverent in the same way is realizing this is a space where we walk in and we encourage you to realize that, yeah, our, our whole goal here is to find new orientation towards who Jesus is and who God is. And uh, wherever you're coming from in life, whatever that looks like is a way of saying like at the end of the day, how, what does it require for us to look more like Jesus? And that means that we're not going to pack your schedule full of, you know, crazy church stuff. It's just going to be simple things like eating dinner, getting to know people and learning learning how to develop you guys to impact your own communities, your friends, and the soccer teams that you coach on and show up to, which is a new season for me, actually. That's fun. Yeah, my daughter just started playing soccer. Yay! She has Down syndrome. She's the best. Um, and uh, that's a whole new thing, having a, a Saturday morning playing soccer. Um, I grew up doing that my whole life with my family. I didn't play soccer. Hockey fan, 100%. Um, yes. Thank you. That's what I'm talking about. Is that Mike? Yeah, it is. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so anyways, great season for me. So here's what we're going to do today. Um, last week, we did communion in silence, and we're going to do that again. Oh, it was so good. Um, so uh, for those of you who uh, don't know, um, communion is open uh, for everybody here. We believe that the Bible actually offers um, communion as a way to step into fellowship with who Jesus is. It's not um, a selective process, an exclusive process that's only held out for those who already believe, but rather an invitation for those to step into a journey of faith as a way that Jesus would say he's in inviting you to the table, and that might be your first time to sit down with him and experience that. Um, in addition to when we do that, we also have um, these walls up here, our, our prayer walls. So if you need prayer, um, we have a prayer team that is praying for you throughout the week um, and on Sundays, and you can write prayers down and tuck them into that wall. And then during communion, we also have um, some of our community pastors and prayer team folks over here that you can pray with. And if you need to talk with someone today, 
of course, you can always talk with our community pastors. These are what we consider um, the workhorse pastors of our community. So they will visit you in home, visit you at the hospital. Hey, what's up, Andy? Um, and uh, wherever you're, and, and meet you, you know, wherever you're at. So they they were orange lanyards. Um, if you've never met them, I'd encourage you to uh, to take a chance to meet some of them. Um, our friend Jack West is here to teach with us today as we continue in Acts, um, which is going to get me to my next thing. So what I'm going to do, which is going to be so much fun, you've heard me talking so much, and you're going to get to hear me talk a lot more because I'm going to read to you Acts six and seven. Does that sound good? Yeah. So it's not going to be on screen. Um, you're welcome to open it up on your phone or if you have a Bible. Um, we've been practicing um, a bit of a thing called Lectio Divina um, here at the church uh, for the past month. Um, we won't do an entire kind of version of that today, but it, it will. It's, it's intended to offer the same type of thing. So as I'm reading it, um, I would encourage you guys to try to hold on to some things you notice. And then um, I'm gonna, when I'm done reading, we'll just kind of take a slight pause before I have Jack come out. But I just want you to kind of sit in that and ask, you know, ask God, why did you bring my attention to those things? And then as we get into the teaching about those passages, um, those might illuminate some things. So here, I'm going to need some water for this one, right? All right. So here we go. <clears throat> it was fun kind of reviewing this this week because um, <laughs> for what it's worth, um, I read my Bible, just so you know. But the uh, it's I'm always reading it on my computer or on my phone. So it was actually so nice to actually open up a physical Bible <laughs> for like the first time. I actually had to find it. <laughs> that might be offensive to some people, but like I mean, I, it's you know whatever. I'm a zennial, so I have access to the Bible whenever I need it. I just like I was like I had to stop and like wonder because my daughter got a hold of it and was messing with it, and I put it away somewhere like a month ago, and I was like I don't know where my Bible is. It was in my car. <laughs> um, okay, so enough of that. And let's go ahead and um, let's dig in. So before we get uh, before we get into this, um, I just want to pause here. I'm gonna go ahead and um, just kind of pray quietly, and uh, and then we'll start reading. Okay. All right. In those days, when the number when the number of disciples was increasing, the Greek and Jews among them complaining against the Hebraic Jews uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, "It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables." Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procorius, uh, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly at a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 
Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down from us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Sounds like something powerful is about to happen, right? (laughs) Man. Okay, so what we're going to do is, um, as I continue here, uh, to help you guys kind of just realize what's going to happen. So Stephen is then, he's about to almost give the entire historical narrative of the Old Testament before the Sanhedrin. So they drag this guy uh, like into this space who's been testifying things and speaking about Jesus and basically repeating what Jesus was also telling the Pharisees in which, you know, they killed Jesus for the very same thing. So it's interesting. We're starting to see this reflection of a human spirit actually modeling very much the same thing that Jesus was doing. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? And here is Stephen's lengthy reply without interruption from the Sanhedrin. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you, God said to Moses. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation. They serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised eight days of, um, sorry, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all this place. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that they were that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers and their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent um, sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75, ooh, 75 in all. 
Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and opposed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. This was Passover, if you guys remember this time period, um, in the, um, with the seven plagues. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared, uh, cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them. Uh, he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you've killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Oh, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. When the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the impression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words. Who, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert when the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our, and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. It's because he was up in Mount Sinai. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices. Uh, they brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Um, this is a reference back to a text. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel. You have lifted up the shrine of, of Molech and the star of your god, Rephen, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into the exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the, of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers, under our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. 
It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, another reference, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? So Stephen now has just basically repeated back history to them, quoted the prophets, much like Jesus had been quoting the prophets and trying to say, like, here's what the prophets were repeating, what God had actually gave them. While you sat and observed this entire narrative, here's actually what God wanted to say. And so now, here's Stephen's charge against the Sanhedrin. You stiff-necked people. With uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him, Jesus. You have... um, You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. And meanwhile, here's the first mention of Paul. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So um, take a moment to kind of hang on to things that stood out to you. Um, We're just going to kind of sit for another minute here and uh, just give you guys a chance to reflect on what you just heard and and see if anything else kind of sat there. And then um, I'll pray and then we'll go ahead and move on. Lord Jesus, um, I ask that you make us um, a grateful uh, community today. Um, That as we have the chance to hear Jack teach, um, that you prepare us, you put us in a posture um, to be surprised by you, that we could hear you, um, that this text would illuminate um, the depth of what's occurred here, Lord. Um, while, while many of us may not ever experience the kind of martyrdom that, that Stephen experienced, Lord, um, in your own way, would you open up the heavens and reveal yourself to us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Vox. How are you guys this morning? Yeah, I am 
I am really glad to be here with you this morning. My name is Jack, as Andy said. Um, I've been here uh, before, at least uh, in this position here uh, in front of you, um, but I've attended and I, I actually attend online. Uh, and so in, in that spirit, I'd like to say hello to our friends on the internet, most notably my wife, uh, who is watching us uh, on the internet uh, this morning. Um, she was uh, engaged with our kids, trying to take them uh, to their, their small groups at, at the church where I actually uh, am on, on staff, Mariner's Church. Um, and so I am connected uh, to your community, mostly through Ronnie and Andy, um, as they are friends. But uh, Ronnie and I had an opportunity to work together. And so he in, has invited me here to participate. And so I'm, I'm honored to be here, to be able to um, join with you as we engage this text. And I thought it was unique that Andy brought the idea to read such a, a bulk of the text. Uh, and, and I think it, it says a lot about who you are as a community, that you would have uh, the space uh, in your own head and your own heart to sort of absorb uh, that story, and he felt like, and I and I agree that this w- it was a good mode uh, to begin this message because there's there's this story of Stephen, which is really him explicating the story of Israel, and and really what it is it's it's the story of the church uh, as it's being transformed by God's Holy Spirit, and so it's our story. Uh, even though it seems sometimes remote to talk about you know, Abraham and Jacob and and, and Moses, uh, and yet that is presently the story in which we have stepped into. Even in as you've come to this room, uh, to in, in my in my sense to to have something revealed to you. I don't believe that we we travel this far. We we we. We engage in this kind of community. Um, we press in um, because we just want to have the story told to us the same old way so that we can leave this place unchanged. No, we want revelation. We want to hear the story afresh. And I think that was true for the church, true for what Stephen was doing in that moment, and, and I think true for us this morning. So I come, I, you know, that's a <laughs> big entry. <laughs> you, you up to it, Jack? I get it. Uh, I've, I'm feeling it myself, not not simply because we're talking about martyrdom, death, uh, persecution, suffering, uh, but because um, I'm actually called, you're actually called to witness to the revelation. Witness. Uh, the word Greek word is martus. It's a martyr. Martyrs are witnesses to a revelation. And the Greek word for revelation is apocalyptic, apocalypsis. And so my running title as I wrestled with this, this passage was grappling with the apocalypse. Is that, is that large enough? <laughs> is that ominous enough? Does it include? Or, or, or I think the other one I had was um, living the apocalyptic life. <laughs> How do we do that? How do we step into this story? How does uh, not just, you know, the, the Israel's story as it's being transformed into the church, but how does Stephen's story become our story uh, in, 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 our, in our own unique revelation of what Jesus has done and what the Holy Spirit is up to in our lives? Um, but it comes through uh, grappling with the revelation of who Jesus was and in that becoming 
or a life that bears witness to his death and to his life, to his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so that's really where we've come uh, as we've traveled through Acts thus far. So I'm picking up here. My swaft was five and seven, um, but I'm, I'm going to give Ananias and Sapphira, who are in chapter five, their story a little short shrift. Uh, but I, don't, I need to acknowledge it, that that was sort of the, the working out of the transformation of communal life in the beginning as God's spirit moved into his people and of course their story uh, of deceit and and of course their death is a part of how is god actually his spirit transforming the way we do community but i really want to focus on on stephen's story and if I, I'm taking kind of a cue from N.T. Wright and the way that he sort of blocks N.T. Wright as a scholar, um, many uh, great New Testament uh, scholar, but he's kind of broke up Acts into one through ver- chapters one through twelve, and then and then twelve um, to the end. And and so I'm I'm and he he places chapter seven, uh, Stephen's story, it's sort of the the epicenter or the climax of that first half of Acts, uh, in, in that um, there has been a, a movement of God's Spirit. It's been breaking into the community, as I said, transforming every part of it, and then sort of coming into this climactic scene as Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, uh, and they question him about um, what it is that Jesus is saying. What does he mean in that uh, he's going to dis- to dismantle, uh, destroy, in their words, the temple, uh, and then and then and then usher in a new age. But here's the thing, we, as Will said, and I think even Carrie mentioned, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to figure out where I should put this water. I'm just going to, right here? Is that good? There we go. Okay. <laughs> Carrie's like, just put it down. Um, I, I do need it because I'm, I'm wrestling with a bit of a, a cold. So here's the thing. As we come to this climactic moment, um, I think, uh, and because uh, Luke and Acts are sort of written as um, Luke's gospel and then, as I'm calling it, the sequel to the gospel. Um, all good story writers sort of drop hints of where they're going kind of at the end as they, as they turn the page into the sequel. And Luke does that at the end of his gospel. And um, clumsy sort of bridge to lighten things up. I'm watching uh, season eight of, Wake, of Walking Dead. Yeah. And uh, Walking Dead, uh, the writers of Walking Dead are, are fantastic at this, right? So they end season seven, they tie up kind of all these like loose ends, and then they drop this one really major plot point that tees you into season eight. So um, I did not go back and and remember what that plot point was. So as I started season eight, I'm like the first episode, I'm grappling with what the heck is going on because I haven't picked up the hint from the end of of season seven. I don't want to do that to you. So here we are. Let's go back. um, So rewind a little bit. As, as we understand uh, the, theo- the main theological point of Luke, and then as he's hinting toward uh, what's happening with the sequel of Acts and, and the movement of what God is doing um, in the world now through Jesus and then, of course, into his church. And now I want to pull, let's pull up slide number one as we come to the end of Acts. <clears throat> so this is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, this is uh, coming down um, 
and this is a hint here. This is Jesus as he's on the cross. And so there's the crucifixion scene in Luke. And it says, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn into, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. And so you have this imagery, clear imagery of Luke, of the, of the curtain in the temple, which is the, the, the whole, the, what separates the Holy of Holies, which sort of was the, 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 the dividing wall between God and his people is torn in two. And then we have Jesus on his own lips, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then it moves on, Luke moves quickly into um, the, the resurrection and, of course, um, this very famous story. So that's the hint. And, and it's kind of like, that's a pretty big statement that the curtain would be torn in two. There's this sort of cataclysmic, apocalyptic thing that seems to be percolating. It varied at the, right at the end, and Luke just kind of moves past that. Of course, and two, the resurrection of Christ, which is, of course, um, you know, him finishing his work. But, but, let, but let, me, let, me, let me look at here at this main theological point uh, that, 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 is a, that Luke is making, is that the, the Messiah was to come to suffer and die, and as a result of that, on this death on the cross and his raising to new life would bring about a new age. And, the, and that all who believed in this revelation would receive the forgiveness of sins and be saved. So here's the thing. Let's go to the, the second slide. Okay, he put it on two, two different slides. That's great, because I was wondering about that, how we're going to do this. So here it says, then, so famous story, Road to Emmaus story. This is where this passage comes at, back to. I'm going to come back into that story, but let's read these words. So th now Luke is finishing his gospel here. This is Jesus after the, the, the disciples from the walking from the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem to Emmaus because the, the, the crucifixion has happened. Um, there's, there's hints that Jesus has risen from the grave, but, but it, the idea that, that the Messiah would suffer and die was just not a category that they understood. So they were, they were walking away. They thought it was over. It says, then they, and then Jesus comes up behind them on the road and, and, and says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses. The Greek word there is martyrs. You are martyrs of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And again, that's the second hint that something is going to happen, that this curtain tearing, that, that Jesus breathing his spirit, his last breath and his spirit leaving him, something is happening. But it's coming through this main theological point that Luke is making at the end of his gospel that we cannot miss. And that is the category of a suffering Messiah. Now, I'm, I'm laying that foundation, and I know I'm, I'm coming a little bit around my elbow to get to my, my wallet here. But here's the thing. If, if we do not have a theology of suffering, if we do not understand that suffering, Jesus' suffering, was the means of our salvation, then, then we will misread our own suffering. 
we'll fundamentally misunderstand our own pain and therefore miss how we are to bear witness, how we are to actually reveal with our own lives the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, that, and I'm, I'm kind of dropping a little, a little bit up there because I, 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 I want you to know I'm going somewhere with this. Um, so we, can we bring the scripture back up? This is mostly for me. Okay. <laughs> so the main theological point is this. Messiah was come to suffer and die. Now that was tough for them to understand that the Messiah would come to suffer because they had uh, Messiah, uh, they had other Messiahs. Um, Judas Maccabeus was, was, was fresh in their memory. Um, he was one of the last sort of overcomers or conquerors that kicked out uh, the Gentiles at that time. Uh, it was remnants of Alexander's old empire. This is like 100s BC. Uh, came in. Um, Judas Maccabeus was a, uh, uh, one of the priests. He rose up, led an army, um, and so the idea that 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 a Messiah would 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 go through struggle to overcome um, was certainly in their framework. That that suffering might be a byproduct of that victory that God would win through His chosen warrior. But the idea that the warrior's main purpose was to suffer and die, and that would bring victory, that was not in their minds. And so that scene that I, that I described on the, on the way to Road to Emmaus, where Jesus drops into the disciples, and, and, and he says, you know, you know, where are you going? What's going on? And actually, in, in the ESV, uh, I love this line. It, it, it translates Jesus' words, what is this conversation that you are holding what is the conversation that you're holding? How are, basically, how, how are you now holding the conversation of life? What is, what is going on in your life? How, how is it that you are coming uh, to understand the world in which you live? And they look at him like, are you crazy? Are you, are you disconnected from what's going on? And, and then Jesus moves in and says, well, actually, let me explain to you what God was doing, and he goes back to the, it says, to the law and the prophets and pulls them all the way from into that main theological point that we're trying to wrap our minds around, that the Messiah would come and suffer and die. And as I said, that is critical to understanding um, the story of Stephen because of the way that he ends his life. And of course, even if you look at all of the, the stories up until this point in Acts, the, the disciples, James and John, are thrown in prison. Um, there, there, there is trouble, um, there is suffering, there is difficulty, and it has to be held within the right framework if we're going to understand it and become the witnesses God has called us to be. So let's look at Stephen's story. Let's, can you give me a um, slide? I guess it would be number th- the next one. Was he diamond? Uh, nope. Let's go. Is there? A, can we go back? Um, sorry, the next one after that slide number four. Acts six, twelve to fourteen. There we go. So as you've heard, this was just read uh, uh, read over you. Um, this is the charge that the Sanhedrin brings, and so in this charge, we can kind of read into. Um, what it was that they that troubled them so much about what Jesus was bringing that brings us into I think what what Luke is doing in this part of Acts the critical point that we have to grapple with theologically in this theological narrative. So I'll read it. It says, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up fault witnesses who said, This now 
I want you to understand that false witnesses not necessarily mean um, that the words that they're, they're charging him with are not true, that, that, that some, in some form Stephen did not say these things. Or it just means that they're sort of trumping up people who really can't testify to the words, but, but, but because in that time you needed, you needed witnesses, you needed multiple sources. I mean, kind of, kind of like now this is a legal proceeding. But the idea is that the charge is this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, referring to the temple complex that they were probably in at that moment. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, I want to define who these people are because this charge is an echo of the charge that they brought against Jesus. Um, But this is not the mob. This is not the mob being led by the religious elite. This is decidedly the religious elite. This is decidedly those who had most stake in the temple. Those who had the most stake in the temple and all that represented in the temple was the intersection point of economic life, social life, and religious life. There were no neat distinctions around sociology, you know, religious life, philosophy. I mean, it all sort of came, all of life, they were just sort of flowed together fluidly in Israel around the temple. So it was the central point of their entire identity their entire story, and then obviously where God was, was, was taking them in the future. And here it is, is that Jesus has come and, he, and, 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 and Luke is saying his spirit is now being, it has exited the temple. Starting in Luke with the curtain ripping, coming through Pentecost as the spirit, leaving the temple mount in essence, coming in, to his people and transforming them into the church. And so the reality is, the theological reality is that the Temple Mount is now extinct. And those that have the most stake in it are fearful that, that they're, going, they're, they're going to lose the life that they had. And so fearful that they're going to have to, to, to end this message, this Jesus this revelation that is coming from this Jesus. And Stephen is the focal point of that right now. And so maybe this is a parenthetical, but if I would have to say, uh, if I look at the narrative of the way that the Bible unfolds and the way that, that Stephen uses the prophets and he, he arranges their words as his charge against these men, that this is God's final judgment on the temple complex. And when I say judgment, why, why, would God, why would God judge the temple? It's because the temple had become a place of oppression. It become it literally become an agent of empire. It become an economy that was keeping God's spirit contained. And if that is even possible, but, but they were trying to do that. They were trying to hold on to what they had. And God was saying, no, my story is much bigger than that. What I have in store for Israel is much bigger than that. And so, but there's this death grip. And that is where we come to as the charge is made. And then Stephen's response. Stephen's response, as Andy said, is simply a retelling of Israel's story. But it's done in a way to broaden the horizon, to move 
away from the temple and into the, what God is doing in the church. Now, for me, this kind of has, right now in my life, sort of has radical implications. Next week, I will be in Israel. I'm actually taking, a, I'm, going, I'm leading a part of a trip. Um, the big, big group of people coming from Mariner's Church, they do this every year. It's sort of a pilgrimage. Um, that, that they take people on sort of a faith adventure. How do we, you know, kind of um, visit those sites which hopefully will broaden our faith horizons and help us step into this larger story. And so for me, this tension is is that um, what is God doing in this place? Well, clearly in this passage, he's moving his people out. He's, He's moving his revelation out, beginning with a death. And so that place no longer holds, can hold the revelation of God. And as I'm going back there, I'm thinking, part of me is like, why am I going back? But I understand why I'm going back. But it's beginning to reshape how I understand what that place holds. Because it's a beginning and not an ending. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not a place of containment, but a place of, of moving out. So let's just really quick, let me review what, I've, what we've got. And then we'll hopefully find some application So the idea is that God's spirit is broken out of the temple on the basis of Jesus of Nazareth, one off event, his death and his resurrection. And it is the event to which the disciples, not knowing, not known, um, now known as the church, they're bearing witness to that. That's the martyrs. That's what Stephen is speaking to. And so Luke's unfolding of the revelation of Jesus as suffering of Messiah, redeeming Israel, is now the central vehicle for this revelation in the church, not the temple. But because the temple is this central place, right? Because it had, in the past it had contained so much of Israel's life, there is a death grip on it. And yet that, that is precisely the point at which God's spirit breaks in through this threshold of death. Stephen's death, but also the other deaths, all of the suffering, all of the points at which there is no longer a path forward, but only a pathway in. So we have this God who's speaking this revelation, who's moving this revelation through his church by his Holy Spirit, and it's transforming Israel into the church. That's a big statement, that Israel would now become the church and not just a, a church for Israelites. See the, see, the first church, the first Christians were Jewish, and they understood, as Luke says at the end of this gospel, that this was going to be a movement for people of all nations, all tongues, all tribes. And that was a radical new beginning. And Stephen is bearing witness to this in his death life act because he's holding the story differently. He's offering it to us, the church, as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, in a more expansive, transformative way. But here's the rub for us. We've got to die. We've got to step into the death. We've got to step into the suffering around us. Now, I I have wrestled with that, honestly, because I I look at my life and and, and how I I have suffered, but also just comparing that 
to the lives of others and even other places in the world. And, and, and the interesting thing was, as I was um, kind of writing this bridge sentence, which I'll, I'll give you, that goes from kind of Stephen's experience, which is radical, right? This, it's this radical, ultimate ending, radical vision there as he ends. And of course, the, the, the radical mercy that he offers, all of this very radical. <laughs> And so I'm trying to, what's the, what's the bridge? How do I get from, from there to here? And, and I'm literally, I'm on, you know, I'm on my computer and I had, you know, because I'm multitasking, I've got my two-year-old in front of me with her pretzels and hummus and I've got Facebook up in the background and I've got my word processor and this Facebook messenger pops up and it's a, a friend of mine who I know through networks of other friends I've never met him personally. He has a church in India. He says, how you doing, Jack? Good, watching my, you know, cute little two-year-old daughter eats pretzels and hummus. He says, great, you know, good to hear, you know, good to, you know, blah, blah, blah. It kind of greetings, introductions. And he says, would you pray for us? Pray for our church. There have been some uh, other sectarian um, religious people, Islams and, and Hindus specifically, have been lighting fires and our church has been burned. And, and some, of, some of our congregants, they're getting their Bibles stolen out of their hands. Sometimes their hands are getting burned. They're burning our Bibles. Would you just pray for us? I'm like, whoa. I mean, first of all, I'm undone that, that the, the movement of God's spirit in that moment for me and for you, for us, to be drawn in um, to this larger story. But it also reminded me, God, that you can't compare. We can't compare. I can't compare my suffering to another suffering. Yes, I have to have this perspective, this generous understanding of the world's pain and, and, and even our own brothers and sisters around the world as we suffer. But God has called me to pay attention, to pay attention to the thresholds, to the deaths. He's, he's asking me to die so that I don't miss the ability to witness, to bear witness to his death and his resurrection. And I think that's for me sometimes the trick as I enter into this but they're all around us. Because Stephen was just a guy living on his own edge in the moment by the power of the Holy Spirit taking the only step he could take. I'll say that again. And this is the sentence that I wrote down just as Pastor Shares um, uh, messaged me. Stephen was just a guy living on his own edge in the moment by the power of the Holy Spirit taking the only step he could take. A friend of mine, as I wrap up here, um, recently passed uh, for stage five cancer. And uh, leading up to his eventual death, um, we had many conversations, uh, friend conversations, pastor conversations. And one, at one point, uh, as we prayed for healing, but also uh, kept our eye on the horizon and, uh, of of his eventual disappearance and what that meant and how to how to walk up to that threshold with him we had conversations about what 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 is god doing in this suffering as he's 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 wrestling with chemo and i remember you know uh he kind of a lot of ups and downs and one day we were having coffee and he and he had just come off um a chemo treatment and so there was just always this peak of 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 pain of physical pain and he was relaying this moment of when he was at home and his he was just racked with pain and he fell back on his bed and arms high and his daughters are at the doorway of his room and they're in high school and they're just 
he's like, what is God doing? Why, why, is he, why is he letting me go through this? But more importantly, why is he letting my, my daughters see this and, 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 and witness this? And I, I, no, no words came out of my mouth, right? Uh, what, what, what are the words? You know, I said, I, Joe, I, 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 I don't know. He says, come on, pastor. <laughs> he would do that. He would, when he would, he would draw me into these really, you know, w- of course we don't know moments. He would say, what do you got to say, pastor? And he would give me this wry smile. But the only words that came out of my mouth were, Joe, uh, possibly this is how you reveal to your daughters the death of Jesus. How it is that you might reveal the ultimate revelation in their life by the way that you suffer and walk this road. Now, I don't have an answer for why they're suffering, but I do know that there is purpose in the pain, not as a byproduct, but as the means of our transformation. So what is your edge today? What is your edge? God is always calling us up to the edge of ourselves, to that extremity where we don't know, where we don't have a pathway forward, but we do have a pathway in. And it's to embrace the pain and let it change us so that we can reveal, we can witness, we can martyr, the ultimate revelation. Death frames life, and it offers us all the deaths, all the the little thresholds that we are called into, which include death. Death frames life, and it offers us a doorway in when there is no path forward. Every day has this feature for us. Every season begins with this dynamic. And I believe every life and every story turns on this reality. Certainly the church explodes from this point in the story outward. God's spirit leaves the temple, inhabits his people, and I can't tell you how radical that idea was at this time. But I believe you can catch by Stephen's posture at the threshold of his own disappearance exactly what that meant to him and to the church. And it's this powerful moment which sends the church outward into the world. Yeah, I'm sure they were a little worried, <laughs> a little scared. Even even like we may be with the threshold that we stand in where we don't know what to do. And yet that is the opportunity for God's spirit to move in and to do things that we could never imagine. So we're going to take communion. Um, And in my mind, this table uh, is really kind of the first step up to a threshold. It's a first step to engage, at least symbolically, I believe, a threshold that we're all called to walk through. And that is the death of Jesus and how we celebrate uh, its working out in our own lives.
Because this is the meal that as Jesus stood at his own threshold, his own, his own edge, taking the only step he could take, he invited his community, his followers, into remembering that moment. Because that is the moment in which we receive life. We receive the life that comes from his death. And so we're going to take it um, uh, like we did last week. We're going to take it in silence. And so you'll come up and grab um, the elements uh, over here at at the stations. Um, And then you'll take it back to your seat. Um, The band will will play some music in the background. I'll come up and and set up our moment together as we we across this threshold together. Uh, and then um, please know that the prayer team is also here at the north entrance if this time uh, becomes a time where you need prayer. Uh, and then um, we'll come back and, and eat together. So come as you're ready. Amen. Would you all stand with me? I have the pleasure of speaking now. <laughs> um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming today. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.